If you will please turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7. This book of Revelation was sent to the churches and to none other. John the Apostle, the aged Apostle, exiled to the Isle of Patmos, was exiled there under the first great general persecution that came under the Emperor Domitian. And it has been said that from Patmos, where he was exiled, he could almost look across the Aegean, the Aegean Sea and see those churches in Asia Minor that he loved so much. They were under such great persecution at the time and were being invaded by incredible false doctrine. And so when we look into a passage like this one in Revelation chapter 5, we have to understand from the perspective of, of John the Apostle and the churches that are under persecution that it has a message that gives tremendous comfort. There are those who look at the book of Revelation as if it were some horror show. Matter of fact, there have been horror movies just about made from what's herein. And of course, it's all because of man's desire for that which is unusual and fanciful. And there have been methods of interpretation that have not been biblical. They look at things that are happening in the world and they suppose that these things fit or they make them fit. This has been done for centuries and yet those things pass and nothing happened. It's what was taught uh, in these various systems. So Isaiah says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So we have to understand when we study the book of Revelation that there are biblical principles that must guide our understanding. Uh, we, for instance, when we find certain figures in the book of Revelation, prophetic figures. These are not inconsistent with all the rest of prophetic scripture so that the way these objects are used in prophecy, they are also used in the book of Revelation. We have to make a comparison, comparing spiritual things to spiritual, God enabling us to do so. We can only be taught the spiritual book by the work of the Holy Spirit. Over and over you read again, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. There's so much fanciful teaching to this book. The dispensational system even robs the church from what belongs to it. It's a thief. From Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 19, it says it doesn't even belong to the church. It says the church won't even be here. And... Of course, this takes its theory from uh, the uh, dispensational method that was come about in the mid-1850s, never heard of before in the Church of Jesus Christ. And the historical way this book has been interpreted was laid aside by that. And the fanciful teaching began in the, this dispensational system. And yet the Church is throughout in the book of Revelation. How could we apply to us what is here and keep it if it didn't apply to us so John says in Revelation chapter 1 and uh, and in verse 3 
Blessed is he that readeth, and they that heareth, they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So you find out throughout the book, including from chapters 4 through 19, the exhortation to faith and patience in the midst of difficulties and sufferings. But we want to look now into chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7. And John the Apostle, given this vision and this revelation on the Isle of Patmos, he writes, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and without, uh, written and on the back side, that's without, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven, eye, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. There are certain passages in the book of Revelation that are not that difficult to understand. There are passages that are, that require a great deal of looking and comparison with other prophetic scriptures throughout the scripture. And the uh, interpretation that is really important is that nothing is going to conflict in the book of Revelation with the clear doctrinal teaching of the New Testament and the epistles. That becomes a guide. What is clearly made known becomes the guide to understanding what is more obscure if God teaches us by the work of his Spirit and there's going to be no conflict between them. So we have passages like this and passages like in Revelation chapter 14 where uh, the judgment, the final judgment is shown and, and the Lord coming uh, to gather his own and judge the world all at the same time. These things become clear in the book of Revelation. And so, this passage should not be that difficult to understand. It's man who clouds things up. It's man who hides the meaning of things with his, with his so-called prophetic schemes and so forth. And so, though there be more difficult passages in the book of Revelation, this one should be rather easily discernible. And it should also present to us a clear proof that the application is to be present. It's to be continuous. It was to be present, continuous in the church and the churches of Jesus Christ from the time it was given all the way to the second appearing. 
or the consummate purpose of God in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it belongs to the church. It's given to none other. The Lord Jesus says in Revelation chapter 22, verse uh, 16, these things, uh, he says, he sent his angel to make unto you known unto you in the churches. He sends it to the churches. So John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos becomes also the representative of the Lord's church. He says in Revelation 1, 9, I, I am your brother and companion in the patience and kingdom of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm your companion in this. And he becomes a representative of the church. So in this chapter, his tears represent also that of the churches and of the people of God. And they're in need of great consolation because they're in the midst of great suffering. Great persecution has broken out against the people of God. Not only that, we know also that even more subtle doctrinal errors have come that are attempting to distort and destroy the very gospel of God's grace that God gave through the apostles. So John is aware of this. He's on the Isle of uh, Patmos. He's not in the churches. He can't go there and teach and straighten them out. But God gives him this revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. He sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. And through his angel to John, according to Revelation twenty-two sixteen, to his churches. And so, it's no wonder that the adversary, Satan, has worked so tirelessly in the false system of premillennial dispensationalism a sinister, robbing system. Very wicked, in my view. And removed from Revelation chapter 4 through verse 19 what belongs to the church. Including this passage in Revelation chapter 5. So we have in chapter 5 a seven-sealed book. We read in verses 1 and 2. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Well, if we're going to know something about the meaning of this book, we need to ask where it come from. Where did it originate, this seven sealed book? Well, it comes from the one on the throne. It comes from the one who is enthroned over all things. It is, if you please hear, the essential throne of deity. God's throne. Particularly in this passage, in this place, that of the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ reigned with the Father in eternity past. Sharing the very same glory. He is of the same deity, is of the same essence with the Father. And so in time, in eternity past, and that's the only way we know how to say it, we have to go from our reference point, so we look back and look forward. God doesn't do that, but we have to. But in eternity past, uh, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ 
also shared the same glory with the Father. Matter of fact, he prays in John chapter 17 in that great high priestly prayer, Now, O Father, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So this glory is going to be resumed. And yet it's going to be as the Lord Jesus Christ has forever taken unto him flesh and blood, humanity. We don't know what his body is, how it is now composed in its resurrection glory, same body that came out of the grave. But he came into this world and became a man. God manifest in the flesh. And so now he is glorified, but in his manhood. This man, after he hath offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Those are quoted from the book of Hebrews. So hereafter, in the book of Revelation, the throne of God is, guess what? Referred to as the throne of the Father, or the throne of God and of the Lamb. Since he is now risen from the dead. So this is the origin in God, coming from the throne of essential deity. It's in the right hand of the throne occupant. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. In the right hand of the throne occupant. The right hand of God signifies his power to completely accomplish everything he decrees. Whatever is his purpose, he himself brings it to pass. As in Isaiah 14, 27, the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? It signifies God brings to pass what he purposes, infallibly so. No one's going to mess up his purpose. No man, no entity, no power in heaven or in earth is going to change the purpose of God. And he is going to bring it to pass. It's in his hand. So, where is the Lord Jesus Christ seated? He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what is he doing there? Well, as in Psalm 110, verse 1, and several times quoted in the New Testament, he must reign. He's a reigning king. He's reigning deity, but God-man now. He must reign till all enemies are put beneath his feet. So what about the contents of the book? If you take careful notice, you find that it's written within and on the back side. It's filled up. Nothing is left blank. No spaces in it whatsoever. Completely filled up, both within and on the backside. You see, because the purpose of God proceeds from himself. He is sovereign. He decrees. His decrees are brought to pass. 
No one adds to that. No one puts their signature to it. No one adds any comment to that. That's God's decree. It cannot be moved by anything because it's according to his good pleasure in whom you also trusted after that you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. He worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 God did not sit down and counsel with any man. There was no man to counsel with. He did not counsel with the angelic being because angels are created beings. They were created unlike man in mass. Man is procreated. They were created in mass, but they were not there when God decreed. He worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So we have a book that represents the holy purposes of God and that for the world and for the church and that are given to show the preservation, the keeping of the church through it. You remember the Lord Jesus' word to Peter, Simon Peter, in uh, Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have in the book of Revelation shown that all that hell can bring against his churches cannot prevail against it. God's purpose shall stand. We live in a wicked world, all kinds of perverts, the perversions we see taking place in our own day. But Christ is going to bring to pass what God has purposed. He's going to fulfill everything. And he's not going to lose. So this book is complete, written on the inside, written on the outside, and it is sealed. That's pretty important. Nothing can ever alter in any way or add to God's decree. What the sovereign God of all glory has purposed. The number of seals? Seven. Seven in Scripture is the number of completeness. Of course, you see it over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. The number seven is when all is complete. At one place you read that uh, you have the last trump or the last trumpet, the number seven. That's the last trump when Christ comes, when all is consummated. Of course, we have various visions given over and over in the book of Revelations, at least seven times that begin at the beginning of this age and end in the consummation and judgment of the world so that you have the number of completion in this number seven and uh, this shows that it includes everything that takes place from the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ to the very consummate purpose of God following me thus far So the importance of this seven-sealed book is signified by the cry of the strong angel in verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof? So if you'll take careful notice, John is given to know that it's not simply one who is mighty to open the book. It's not simply one who has 
physical great power that opens the book. That would be man's consideration. You see, man looks at his superheroes, he calls them, as duping the children with that, thinking that real powers to crush and to do by force bring things to pass. But that's not the way it is here with God. Not It doesn't say one who is mighty, although he is. It says one who is worthy. They didn't found one who was worthy to open the book. Now, only one who was totally, completely worthy could open this book. Only one with a spotless, holy character. Only one with a name that's better than that of angels or men could open this book. To which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Hebrews 1.13. This could only be one who by the uniqueness of his own glorious person would be worthy to govern heaven and in earth. You see, whoever takes this book of God's decree rules. Rules over all. It's in the hands of the one who opens this book to bring to pass all that has been purposed. So who is the one who prevailed to open the book? Well, again, in verses 3 through 7. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Quit your crying, John. Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. So we have one who prevailed to open the book. John, as we said, is representative of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the churches of Christ. And... So his tears are those of the church. They are wiped away when there is the knowledge of the glorified Lord and his sovereign authority over all things. This sorrow, this great sorrow, is changed to great comfort when now there comes the realization that all things are in the hands of the Lamb, that he's not going to fail, that God's decree, what he has purposed, is going to come to pass. He has all authority. Matter of fact, he did say that, didn't he, when he was risen from the dead and the time of his ascension? All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He is the one who prevailed. We read that word in, uh, in, in verse 5, the root of David. Of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. 
That word prevailed here is the very same word that's used in the sense of to overcome in chapters 2 and 3. When the promises are given to those who overcome, that they shall receive various things that God has for them made known. And the Lord Jesus used the same word to describe his victory over the world. And uh, when uh, in Calvary Eve, he said to his apostles in John chapter 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be good cheer, because I have overcome the world. That's the same Greek word as prevailed here. And what we have is the signification of the right of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to execute the divine judgments, to bring to pass what the Father hath decreed, all done by the Son. The works of the Father are all done by the Son. The world itself was created by Him. He's the Creator. Redemption is by Him. Sovereign rule over all things is in His hands now. He who died rose again, ascended, and now in majestic glory rules over all things. And we'll do so until final victory comes. The final word is His, not that of man. The final word belongs to Him, not to human governments. The final word is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word prevailed is the same word that's used in chapter 6, verse 2, of the Lord's continuing victory. I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering, and to conquer. Same word, it belongs to Christ. The dispensational scheme gives that to a future antichrist, believe it or not. But this one who prevails on the white horse, same white horse in Revelation 19 when he comes in glory, this one prevails. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. He's going to prevail. Never is going to fail. He is prophetically identified. He's identified from the Old Testament prophecies. He's identified from the prophecy of Jacob in Genesis chapter 49. Chapter 49, verse 9, if you want to write the reference down. You don't have to look there. But he is there shown to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who's going to have sovereign rule forever. And he is, he is, the, um, he is the eternal destiny and brings to pass the eternal destiny of the house of David now revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The people are gathered unto him, as in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. We know under the new covenant, the expansion of the Israel of God that brings all the elect Gentiles in with those chosen from among the Jews. So in prevailing and now being risen from the dead, he takes the throne of David, not in the future, not some earthly reconstituted natural Israel. He takes the throne of David upon his resurrection 
Let's see in Acts chapter 2 if that isn't so. Remember the biblical principle, the scripture itself is our authority for interpretation. So in uh, Acts chapter 2, in verses 31 and 32, this is where Peter preaches. He preaches the crucified, risen, exalted Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 31 and 32, he tells us about taking the throne of David by the Lord Jesus Christ. He, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up where we're witnesses. So uh, what is it here in verse 31 that he is talking about? He's talking about in his resurrection, not in some future date, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, taking the throne of David. Back in verse 29 of Acts 2, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the future millennium. Whoops, wait a minute. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. That, did I read that wrong? Did I read something wrong there? No, it says, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. Christ took the rule of the throne of David, the house of David now, inclusive of the Gentiles and all who come into the kingdom of God. So that, and that's very important to comprehend, he is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. When he says in Revelation 5, talking about the root of David, that's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. He comes out of the house of David. He is the root of David. And so this doesn't have to do with something yet future. It has to do with something now. That's why the Apostle Paul takes that very passage, that chapter, and uh, which foretells the rule and reign of the one who comes from the house of David, the root of David, in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. And then the apostle Paul makes application of that prophecy, shows us its fulfillment, not in the future, but in this very time in Romans chapter 15, verse 12. I'll, you, can, you, you can turn there. In Romans chapter 15, verse 12, this prophecy is not applied some future millennium, it's applied now in this present day. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 15 and verse 12. And again, Isaiah, that's Isaiah the prophet, saith, there shall be a root of Jesse. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 11. And he that shall rise to reign he reigns. That's what we read in Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's already enthroned. He shall reign over the Gentiles. 
in him shall the Gentiles trust. Very clearly, the apostle applies that now, not to some future day. So that's very important uh, to be considered. And uh, that the rain represented is not future and earthly. It's shown from that New Testament authority that we read in Romans 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 12. But you know, it's very interesting in the passage when John looks. When John looks, he doesn't see a lion. What does he see? What does he see when he looks? He sees a lamb. A lamb. In verses 6 and 7. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. He is thus identified as the fulfillment of, of all the types of sacrifice that went before. He's the lamb. We, knew, of course, know about the paschal lamb that was slain and the blood put on the doorpost and lintel and the death angel passing over and God saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. But the sacrificial system began really with Adam and Eve. When God slew an animal, took the skins and clothed them with that animal. And Abel course was given uh, to make sacrifice of his flock Abraham in type was to take his own son Isaac to Mount Moriah offer him up as a sacrifice as in Genesis chapter 22 of course we know the sacrificial system was brought to its height and fruition fruition in prophetic scripture in Isaiah chapter 53 surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we did esteem him stricken, uh, afflicted, uh, stricken of God. Uh, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. He makes intercession for the people that God chose. He offers himself and dies in the place of sinners, substitutionarily. And so... This one who fulfills all this sacrificial system of the old covenant. He's identified by John the Baptist as John sees him walking the banks of the Jordan River and says, Behold who? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lord Jesus Christ overcame, prevailed. He overcame to rule over everything. Now God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. At one day, every day, saint and sinner, demon and angel, all will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. That word signifies he is Jehovah, incarnate ruler over all. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, ruling over all things. 
bringing to pass the purpose, the decree of God, represented by the seven uh, sealed book. So, what a tremendous passage we're looking into here. The type of sacrifice fulfilled. Christ overcame. He overcame to rule all things. But he rules as the Lamb. <laughs> the Lamb. When we think of a lion, we think of that which is rather mighty, powerful, ferocious. And he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he ruled as the Lamb. John says, I looked and saw a Lamb. Now you remember that only one who was found perfectly worthy could open the book and loose the seven seals thereof. Only one worthy. My dear friend and now with the Lord and one of my mentors, Charles Alexander, observed, Satan's sin sprang from his revolt against his fate his repulsion of his subordination to the creature, man, who though created after the angels, was destined to rule over all as the regent of the invisible God. What Satan did not know was that through his own act of rebellion, he would bring about that very situation in which man's destiny would be revealed by God becoming man and proving by his suffering and death and humble obedience his own worthiness to be the creator and king over all. The worthy one. The worthy one. Not by coercive force, but because he became obedient, humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, the mighty God incarnate. And yet, he says to you and me, I'm meek and lowly in heart. Isn't that amazing? The worthy one, because he took the place of the sinner, though he had absolutely no sin whatsoever. The worthy one. This knowledge that all things and to the end of all in the consummation of God's purpose when God and man are forever joined together in a wondrous union which is the final purpose that to take place in a wondrous union of Christ and his church bride and bridegroom brought together in an eternal marriage one glorious union forever he shall consummate all things and bring it to purpose. So it's not man who's in control. The Lord Jesus rules over everything as according to Ephesians 1. The last part of Ephesians 1. In the interest of his redeemed church, the bride for whom he shed his blood. She's not going to perish. She cannot perish. She's going to be brought out of tribulation. Church has been going through tribulation for 2,000 years. Been going out of great tribulation. Prepared 
made ready for the coming of the bridegroom when she's presented to him spotless. The holy bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is in control of everything and brings that to pass. He alone is worthy to open the seven sealed book representing God's decree and bringing all things to pass. So John sees the way in which his authority, that of the Lord Jesus Christ and his powers outworked in verse 6 when he says, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Well, it takes really no great difficulty to know when the sevenfold spirit of God was sent forth into the earth, he came in respect to the glorified manhood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seven spirits are sevenfold because of his perfect work. You remember that's a perfect work. All, perfect number. All shall be completed. The great truth is that Christ is the one in control of all things. Even to this day, all things are in his sovereign hand. He rules over all things in the, uh, the interest of his redeemed church. And this is one of the most comforting truths we could embrace. Whatever we see taking place in this world, he's over all things. Nothing can happen but what it is made to work to the good of his redeemed. All the way until the time that we who are his redeemed are brought into that glorious, eternal marriage union, God and man forever. That was the purpose of God from eternity. What a glorious truth. Makes a difference when you understand some things from the biblical point of view, doesn't it? How wondrous, how comforting. Wipe your tears, John. Wipe away your tears, church. God's purpose shall be completed.